Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. TJ. Hello. And Anthony Hennig is back with us. Hey, everybody. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPECS, a student-faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SpexCast at our website, specs.rit.edu. Uh, if you want to participate in the discussion, reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs, uh, Facebook slash RITSpecs, or by email, specscast at gmail.com. Today we're talking about the proposed budget for NASA for fiscal year 2019. As we get started, uh, I think people know me, TJ, and Drew well enough, but Anthony, uh, for new listeners or people um, that don't know what you do, can you explain why we're talking to you about space policy today? Yeah, so hi everyone. My name is Anthony Hennig. I'm a graduate student down in Washington, D.C. now. I'm working in systems engineering, but uh, my background and kind of where I met all the hosts of this program was at RIT, where I graduated with a science second public policy degree. Fundamentally, it's my belief that policy plays a massive role in engineering. It not only helps guide the systems and engineering process, but there's an opportunity for engineers and policy makers and agenda settles all interact in a lot of really cool ways. If we understand what the policy is saying, we can design systems to meet those policies, but engineers also have the opportunity to think about, you know, how to get funding and how to propose really cool missions. So I think what we're going to be ending up talking about today is how to deal with things being cut and missions being downscoped or completely eliminated. And uh, all in all, I, I really enjoy reading about how policy is influencing the engineering process and potentially how engineers can influence the policy process. All right, great. Um, I'm new to space policy. Um, and I'm sure it's not many people's field of expertise. Can we talk a little bit about how uh, federal budgets work? Um, so this is a budget proposal. What's in it may not be actually what happens, but um, like, so this is fiscal year 2019. What what does that even mean? Like, what, when does this money turn on and when does the old policy turn off? No, this is this is a discussion about a future budget. So the fiscal year ends, I think, it, 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 so in the fall and then it all cycles back around. And so these are an opportunity for the, the White House to say, as agenda settles, what are our priorities? What do we think is the most important? Um, you know, this has been formulated with the centrals and programs advocating for stuff. The White House then takes it. Remember, NASA is an executive agency. Um, then the Office, Office of Management Budget and White House works together. Uh, they come up with a budget request. So you'll see Trump's budget request or Obama's budget request or Bush's budget request. And then after that, it goes to Congress. So it passes by a lot of different parties who weigh in and they help decide what things would be a good idea um, to continue or to keep on walking on. And it, it'll take a little while for it to be negotiated. Um, so this is this is the second-ish 
the process. It's a pretty long one though, on and off. Um, but this is a this is a chance to set agendas. I have one last question about the mechanics of budget proposals before um, we talk about what's in the request, and that is what happens if things are cut. So we have to be aware that there is a slight spending increase this year, but it's going back to this 19.6 billion dollar number where NASA has been at for the past couple of years. The way that this could express itself could be a lot of different ways. Um, Speaking from my experience, you know, working on a NASA center as an intern for a couple of different years, I got to see programs rise and fall or change or get rebranded. The fact is, is that the workforce and the human resources management of NASA centers are really, really small. Um, people can be moved around, right? Um, I was I was recently talking to some friends and everything, and they're like, well, this is being cut, but we're being moved to this new directorate or this new section. Um, because it, it's a talented workforce. They're able to move people around. As for engineering products, though, you know, this is where we get to points where things might get shelved um, or they might be mothballed. So just something to keep in mind. You might see a lot of retooling. There might be a spin-up phase where it's like, oh, we've been doing these specific pieces of technology. We'll no longer have that funding for the next, we no longer have that funding coming up. So uh, we're going to put storage and maybe we'll come back to it at some point in the future. But right now I've been reassigned to work on a different project. But we are changing the agenda. We're changing focus and we're changing what we're spending our time on. Um, so we might there might be different levels of effects between centers and everything. Um, I think we'll end up talking about this much later, but there's a lot of Goddard projects being affected by this new budget request. For the past couple of years, we've been bouncing with different agendas with every different president. Okay, Anthony, what, what are some big shifts we've seen since the early 2000s or so? So I can only speak to the human exploration side of it. That's the stuff that I'm really passionate about. Um, but we had constantly changing goals. So in 2004, we had the vision for space exploration under President, then President George W. Bush, uh, which calls for moon as a stepping stone to Mars. Uh, two years later, we had the exploration system architectural study, uh, which it's really cool if you flip through it. The four documents are online, but this was a comprehensive plan for long-term lunar habitation. Uh, they ended up recommending an Ares-1 and an Ares-5 heavy launch vehicle and Ares-1 being a crew transportation vehicle. I love referencing this document because if you through it, um, you see you see like different rocket trade space studies. So they're trying out different combinations of technologies to get some performances. And so they're like, the best option is an Ares-1 crew transportation thing, which is a solid rocket booster with a cryogenic couple stage and then an Orion. So this is the beginning of when we see the Orion project come into being. Um, and then an Ares-5 heavy lift kind of shuttle-derived vehicle. And then they say the second best thing is something that looks a lot like our air, uh, space launch system. So we see this document in 2006 really lay out a lot of possible future pathways uh, for our space, human space exploration program. Um, then come to 2010, we have a brand new national space policy. This is the agenda setting document that says, we are going to focus on asteroid redirect mission, making sure that we get SLS done at some point in the future. 
Um, we're also canceling Aries 1 and Aries 5. Aries 1 just had a simple test launch in 2009. And then from that, we say, okay, we're going to focus on asteroid redirect using the space launch system. And then we're going to use the space launch system to do these basic human test facilities and test maneuvers. Um, not test facility, or setting up lab space near the moon, or exploring this captured asteroid or component of a captured asteroid. It would change over the course of Obama's tenure, President Obama's tenure between 2010 and 2016. You know, are you going to get a whole asteroid that's spinning, or are you going to just get a boulder and stuff like this? Um, you know, and at the same time, it was kind of this growing realization of the role of commercial space. So in 2006, TJ, I think as the resident SpaceX, or Phil too, as resident SpaceX guys, was SpaceX around in 2006? SpaceX was around, but it hadn't actually launched its first rocket. So uh, Falcon 1 took off in 2008. In 2008 is when they get their commercial transportation contract to actually develop Falcon 9 and uh, Dragon after they launched Falcon 1. So it's still very early. SpaceX was actually founded in 2002, but for the first four to six years, they're a very small team just kind of trying to get their very first rocket up in the air. Yeah, so you have this this really growing community between President Bush and President Obama where they're, they're recognizing this growing commercial spaceflight community just besides what had formerly been primarily subsidized for Air Force and civilian space and civilian science concerns. Um, so really cool transitions and everything. And then, then we get to now where we said, okay, we're going to go moon, then Mars. Uh, and then we said, okay, we're going to do asteroids and then maybe hop, you know, hopscotch directly to Mars using asteroid technologies for in situ resource utilization or paving like, uh, way stations. And now it looks like we're going back to the moon, but we're not going to the surface of the moon. We're going to do some kind of deep space gateway space station around the moon. Yeah, and in this budget, uh, we covered deep space gateway on a previous episode. It's been renamed to the Lunar Orbiting Platform Gateway. So kind of emphasizing that this will be a station for doing missions, uh, research around the lunar orbit, but also as a platform to go out towards Mars. Yeah, so it's actually a pretty cool idea and everything, I have to admit. Remember back to Warner Von Braun, um, when trying to figure out the lunar landing and everything, and his community and space task group at the time, well, what's the most effective way to get up and down from the lunar surface? You know, taking your whole spacecraft there didn't make much sense. And if we happen to have crew, to, crew transportation vehicles on hand, the Orion, Dragon, um, I was about to say Sierra Nevada, but I don't think they're going for human rating just yet. Um, well, could we just transport people to the moon and then essentially use that as a, a way station, a port of call for the moon and beyond? Recently, um, and in this request, um, we see a huge emphasis on human exploration. And yeah. That shifting back to using the moon as a stepping stone as a stepping stone to um, the rest of the outer solar system. Um, yep. is, is so is that really a change, or is it kind of like the scope grew a little bit and then shrank a little bit? And what has all this kind of not flip flopping, but what has all this kind of um, 
shifting and rather than settling and focusing on a single goal, what effects have you seen it have on NASA and overall sentiment in the federal government's role in funding space exploration? Well, let's be real clear in everything. NASA isn't just about human exploration. That is one of their mission directorates, but they also have aeronautics mission directorate, uh, science mission directorate, which might be moving around. We're, we're going to see on exploration systems mission directorate, a science technology mission directorate. They even have an operations mission. Well, I don't think that's a formal name, but they have a mission directorate focused on mission assurance and just making sure everything works or that the grounds are secure. And also remember that there's 11 different NASA centers dotted throughout the country. We're probably familiar with Johnson and the Manned Space Flight Center, Kennedy down in Virginia, you know, JPL, which is actually kind of a NASA center. Everyone's contracted out. They're not federal employees per se. But also remember you have Ames and Armstrong you have IVNV, Independent Verification and Validation, in West Virginia. Uh, you have Goddard, which does science missions. They also do a lot of things for NOAA and weather observation and Earth observation. And then my favorite, NASA Langley, down in uh, Hampton, Virginia, which does a little bit of everything. They work on Orion Launcher Boat. They work on system architectural planning. And then you even have wallets out on the eastern coast of Virginia, which was the, the, the site for a lot of early test launches. They do a lot of aeronautics testing, and they also launch orbital ATK rockets from there on the coast of Virginia. So we even have centrals in, um, like, Stennis. Uh, we have assembly facilities. So, so think of, just keep that in mind. NASA is a huge organization. They, they do a lot of research and development. But, you know, we're looking at this budget and everything, and it's cutting out a lot of Earth observation missions. As you said, NASA does a lot, but they only get so much money. So yeah. it, it's a bit, it's a, you know, push and pull getting that money to where they want it to go. Well, that's also why we have a NASA headquarters. So, so this is a really, this is the image I use in my head when I'm trying to describe what different aspects of policy are going on. Um, this is from a book from a, a man named, whose last name was Gupta, it's Analyzing Public Policy. And it's a public policy cycle that starts out with agenda setting. These are elected officials who have an agenda or a personal agenda or a global agenda. Um, and then from the agenda, you create policy. Policy says, this is how we're going to fund things. This is what kind of mandates we're going to apply following right past that. So if agenda setting is at 12 o'clock on a clock face, we have the policy making at the three o'clock on the clock face. At the bottom, six o'clock on the clock face is execution. We're actually gonna do something. We're gonna make something. We're gonna try something out. We're gonna increase that technology readiness level. And then background again, we have evaluation at the nine o'clock position on the clock face. And so we go clockwise saying agenda, policy, execution, evaluation, over and over and over again. What NASA headquarters does is they handle the specifics of policy. So NASA headquarters kind of lives at the nine o'clock position and kind of at the four o'clock position. And they say, okay, we're given policy by executive agencies or as an executive agency, let's figure out how to cut this up. 
And this is, I've talked to some people in the field who do this as, as consulting or analysis. This is a huge multidimensional pro problem. You have to think about the competencies of the different centrals. I mentioned that Lingley does a lot of aeronautics, but they also do some space. You have Armstrong, which is almost purely flight. You have Goddard that does a lot of science. Johnson, which really just kind of does human exploration. Um, and so at, this, at the NASA headquarters level, you're going to see a lot of cutting and analysis of what, is, what are the best cuts to make. How are we going to partition this gigantic satellite into pieces that the centrals can do? or can advocate for themselves for. Um, and so I think there's, there's a lot of creative folks figuring out, okay, if, if we have to cut something, who do we have on hand? What skills do we have? What chunk can I send out for execution to a central to complete? And then later bring back together. Yeah, it's a really good way to think about it. Okay. Before we do that, I just want to make the point that I think you were drifting towards this, Phil, that with, there's been this flip-flop of administrations because each administration sets their own priorities. Um, but in Obama's second term, his director of NASA, his administrator, Charles Bolden, warned that if if each administration keeps changing, then in our lifetime, in everyone in this room's lifetime, if administrations keep flipping back and forth between where they want to go in terms of human exploration, then we probably will never see an American on the moon or on Mars or near an asteroid or anywhere. Um, he says that we cannot, we cannot continue to change the course of human exploration because when we do that, that's, um, it takes time, it takes money. and To actually execute the change takes time and money. That's, yeah, um, those guys at headquarters trying to say, oh man, if we have to cut this, how, how do we keep on our, our employees? Because it's becoming increasingly harder to hire federal employees. So it's like, okay, well, if we have to cut this, how do we reassign things? So And also buying, investing in tooling, equipment, um, new technologies and stuff for a particular type of human exploration or to go someplace. And then if someone says, no, 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 we don't want to go there anymore, having to do that same technology development in a different direction, uh, there's a lot of moment. I, I think... I agree with um, Charles Bolden. Um, I think it's a lot more efficient um, in time, money, and technology and everything to really build up momentum and carry that momentum toward your goal. But Anthony, I want to hear what you have to say on this because it's something that system engineers get presented with all the time that, you know, historically, these massive system projects or systems of systems take a lot of time and a lot of energy and they're often delayed and they're often late um, and there's that old adage that it, it's going to either cost too much take too long or it's not going to have what you want on it it's not going to have all the features you want yeah the iron triangle you can never beat the iron triangle but aren't you trying to one a proportionate gain in one requires a proportionate loss in the other and if you're particularly bad at your job, you're going to end up losing way more than you gain. Um, yeah, the Iron Triangle. I just took a great systems engineering class, and I, uh, it, it feels like Game, game of Thrones and everything because of how brutal it is. Um, but no, I think, I think you're, you're tapping into a few really critical points. It's 
you know, are we making the right decision? Should we go back to the moon? Why should we go back to the moon? How should we go back to the moon? Um, and I think, I think we have kind of a really interesting two things to compare and contrast against, right? If you have one organization, maybe a private organization that says, we are going to go to the malls like this and like this and like this, you know, you run the risk of selecting the wrong set of features and attributes and performance goals that you want. Um, and there, there's a lot, and, and com- contrast that to maybe what we're seeing right now, which is a lot of delegation, a lot of discussion about what are the right goals? Why should we go back to the moon? Should we go back to the moon? Why not an asteroid? Um, you know, more and more that I feel that we should have something like the National Academies of Sciences who produces a decadal survey where they, they generate consensus. Um, when it comes to science missions, I would love to see a National Academy of Science on human exploration. You know, we sometimes see this with executive orders and executive reports, right? There was one for the vision of space, for the vision of space exploration um, and the Augustine Commission report. But it'd be really interesting to try to get a unifying voice, to try to come to an assessment of the why and the when and then the what of human exploration and try to reach an agreement and actually maybe try to keep keep focus on that goal. Every, every time you change a goal, every time you change something, you're going to spend some time tooling and rebuilding and Right, there's going to be some time just moving people around or getting the right tools to start working on a new project. Um, and I think it's definitely hampered, hampered achieving some really, really cool human spaceflight goals. The constant changing we've been experiencing. Well, we, I think the the origin of Specscast, or at least some of our earliest conversations, were: should we go to the moon or should we go to Mars? Which, what does it make sense to do? And there's there's definitely room for debate on that topic. Of course, we've covered that in depth, at least our opinions. Um, but we should, I think, move on. I think we've, we've pretty well covered the fact that with this flip-flopping, it makes it extraordinarily challenging to try and achieve something, regardless if it's the right thing or not to do. You won't achieve it if you keep changing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's the goal. It... Yeah, I <laughs> I just want to go and look at stuff. I want to get out of here. I want to go check out new stuff. Can we all just agree? Do we, should we have a big conference on this? Probably. But that seems to be exactly what, this, the, what the Trump administration wants, is to literally go out and see stuff. They want to send people, and they're focusing on the human exploration. And part of that is at the cost of other missions. Yeah, the big takeaway from this budget is cut a lot of remote science, a lot of Earth-facing planetary science, and transition that to the manned exploration budget to kind of counteract the effect of switching goals in the timeline. Uh, so ideally, if you put in more money to a project, it gets completed faster. I think is their uh, running assumption. But going into uh, those first of those cuts, uh, WFIRST, uh, which is a, the successor to Hubble and the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, that's been kind of in, uh, I think, phase A or phase B uh, development for a while. Uh, and it has 
the acronym stands for Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. And it's about the same resolution as the Hubble Space Telescope. It's got a much wider field of view, so you can see a much larger uh, image of the universe at once. Um, and so this project was supposed to launch mid-2020s. Uh, obviously, James Webb is scheduled for 2019, uh, so this would be a much shorter timeline than the 20-plus years James Webb took. Uh, and their main focus there is uh, studying dark energy and planets outside the solar system. So a different uh, observational target than Hubble or James Webb. WFIRST is really cool, um, in my opinion. It's like, yeah, James Webb, you can get a lot of detail on a, a very small area of the sky. WFIRST is kind of the opposite. It looks really wide, so you can get a huge area of the sky. And, and the trade-off is that you can't see as detailed information. But there's still so much to learn about it. But if you're looking for those dark energy structures and everything in the dark matter structures, you have to be able to see context. You know, the whole idea is to be able to capture like a galaxy in one shot or a nearby galaxy in one shot or one or two shots. The scale of these objects is incredible. Uh, there's some really great YouTube videos describing the scale of some of the papers claiming that they've discovered the largest objects in the universe. And some of these are like a third the size of the observable universe. So... It's questionable if it's actually a full object or just they've connected some dots. But regardless, um, the the people who... Well, Anthony, you mentioned earlier the decadal survey. This was one of those missions that they wanted to focus on. WFIRST got a little bit of scope creep uh, early on, and they've recommended scaling it back. But I don't think anyone was, anyone was expecting a cut, like a, a complete wipe of WFIRST. They didn't want it to turn into JWST. Yeah, so there have been a couple reports, um, one in 2014, one in 2016, that showed you know, that the cost and schedule were going to be uh, impacted by these changes that were being made to the WFIRST mission. So those, in addition to independent reviews and uh, executive reviews, were, were leaning towards, all right, guys, let's stop and scale back to the original you know, downscope to where we can make sure that this works. Uh, and that's kind of where we were expecting it to go. We were expecting WFIRST to continue with its mission and use the hardware that already existed, but it, it's looking like it's going to just be cut entirely. Yeah, and that comes at the surprise of um, so a lot of people, <laughs> especially me, um, but uh, I did some reading on spacepolicyonline.com to research for this episode. Great resource. Um, highly recommend reading it. Um, it's not as dry as it might sound. It's actually a super interesting topic. But... Marsha Smith is really cool. Um, and her website, Space Policy Online, is spectacular. Yeah. Um, but from, from her writing and um, you know the people she's been talking with, uh, a cancellation seems... Uh, unexpected and drastic. I think for scope creep, naturally, the response might be to recommend some uh, budget cuts or whatever to kind of stifle that and, you know, say, hey, we're not going to pay for any scope creep. You, you know, uh, work with what you got um, and recommend a little bit of downsizing on the budget, uh, which is kind of what was recommended by Congress, I believe, in, in a 
a review earlier this year or last year. The cut kind of seems coming out of the blue. Yeah, and there's going to be some spin down time too. Um, this is a pretty strong agenda footing saying we're cutting this, right? You have some time left on your funding, but we want, we want this to be cut. It's not a priority, um, especially in light of James Webb going very much over budget. Uh, a total of $8.8 .8 billion, I think, when I was reading earlier today, uh, in total for the program. I think that does play a huge role. I think there's a really strong uh, like juxtaposition between how the James Webb Space Telescope has developed in WFIRST, because we had one of the researchers on JWST on the show, and they had been starting since the mid to late 90s on this project, so it's a huge 20 plus years just to launch, and then another 10 years of operation. This huge monolithic project, as Anthony said, 8.8 .8 billion, that could creep up to 9 billion before it actually gets launched. And so I can definitely see how if you're looking up to the success for that, you're like, okay, so no, we're not going to be doing that crazy technology development for that folding mirror. We have pre-made hardware. Let's use that. Let's scale it down. Choose a different kind of research target. And I think those they make good choices there. I think one of the reasons for the cancellation might be just the continuing blowback from James Webb. As it grows uh, more expensive, more takes more time, it's like, okay, well, we invested 20 years in this satellite. Let's get this up, get some data back, see what our return is, uh, and try to recover and minimize cost in that field before we move on to the next one. Because they'd already put about $300 million into W first. Uh, and so like that you know, is going to be a, a, lost, uh, a lost cost in that. And so I'm not sure that's the perfect reason, but it definitely says, like, okay, the way NASA's uh, Astronomical Observatory program has been going, we'd rather it be lower cost, quicker, less risky than that tr upward trend of bigger, more expensive, and things like that. And on this note, I think what is shocking about this and what takes us all by surprise that w First would be cut, which again, this is just the administration's proposal, so it's not guaranteed to be cut yet, but is that everyone supports the decadal survey. Everyone supports it, including Congress and administrations and scientists, so it's weird that this is, that they're going against it. A good consensus tool. <laughs> so the point of the decadal survey is that, like, basically every 10 years, NASA um, surveys academic, scientific, um, and technology communities to say, like, where should, where are we now? Where should we go? What should we learn about? And publish it in this huge document that outlines basically all those areas. And so if you're a scientist or a researcher and you're going, you're like, hmm, um, I want to learn about this one thing. How can I get NASA on board and work with someone to maybe put out a new observatory or what if i want to do something for my research who can i you know get in my boat so we can get a collective amount of support and they reference this survey the product of the decadal survey isn't like we will build a satellite called w force that has a 2.4 meter telescope that has an s-link you know communication system they say 
we need an infrared camera with this field of view between these wavelengths and we need to get two pictures every once in a while right these these are this is a dream of a mission <laughs> so they lay out some functional requirements but also it's it's saying what science they want to focus on in this case w first would have been exoplanet surveys and largely uh dark energy and dark matter research w first came out of what was in the decadal survey for what people wanted to see i think we can all agree that when you cancel a mission we're going to lose something like i don't think w first is the poster child for a mismanaged over budget nasa project uh so like it definitely had good capability it was below or at cost and so like it's not something that's screaming out this this should be cut because it's harming the rest of the organization it's like okay yeah it's like we're losing that and i think the Really, the discussion is, okay, if you take the money, it's good to go for W first, and that gets redistributed to something else, is the resulting project equal to or greater in value? And that's really hard because there's no quantitative metric that everyone can agree on, right? And, you know, as we see, this administration is pushing for manned space exploration, is pushing for lunar exploration, and a deep space telescope doesn't fit into that equation very easily. Uh, so that's probably the driving factor to why it was canceled. Is requested to be canceled. Is requested. <laughs> Is requested. I'm not dead yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it's, um, yeah, the agenda is definitely in a different direction than it has been in terms of old science. Um, w Force is not the only other thing requested to be canceled. There are five other things on the docket. Um, some of them already actually canceled back in January, uh, one of the five. But these are all Earth observation missions and science missions uh, that have been canceled or have been requested to be canceled to later focus on some kind of human exploration program. Uh, it's it's actually really interesting what you bring up about continuation. Uh, a couple months ago, we had the Planetary Society release their report on the Mars sample return mission, arguing that unless we start walking towards a mission right now, we will have a gap of coverage mid-2020s, right? We might have a gap of coverage in terms of communications, a gap of coverage in terms of new science being produced that after Mars 2020, we have nothing on deck, and we know that it will take a minimum of five years. I, I, they use an average estimate, which I, I don't entirely agree with, right? There's something about the feature list and the component list and the new technology development that I think might have a critical driver on development time. But, yeah, these missions take five, 10, 20 years to develop, and... Um, if we don't sell now, then we won't have something in the future. But then again, maybe the question to ask is how valuable is continuation? Is continuation actually valuable? Do we produce too much data that just we don't even use? I mean, for example, the Solar Dynamics Observatory downlinks four terabytes of data a day. You know, do we need a downtime to process every speck of data we've ever looked at? I, I don't know. 
Well, I think on that note, certainly there's, there's an argument to be made that the exact same mission doesn't need to be continued, and there doesn't need to be overlap and continuation for everything. But something like Hubble, uh, there has been this complaint by certain astrophysicists who are studying the gas giants, the Jovian planets, because it, they weren't getting enough time, I believe on Neptune, the storms that were forming were forming and decaying much faster than they do on Jupiter, so the rate at which Hubble had been looking at it wasn't fast enough to give them much good data. So there's always, there's so much to explore that we just, I mean, really, we just want the budget to increase tenfold and then we can look at everything faster. But then you also need people to look at everything faster, too. Or you need to also train those. You can't just say, like, you can't, like, blow on a horn and and the planet, all the scientists and planetary scientists go, oh, I am needed. <laughs> There's a new data set to explore. Um, you also need time to train people to do it. So it, it's, a huge, it's a wicked problem. It's a classic policy wicked problem that... Any choice you make will have an immediate reaction now and an unknown reaction, an unknown time in the future. Uh, so before we uh, transition to talking about the ISS, uh, just for sake of completeness, the five other science missions that, were, that have been proposed to be canceled. There's the Radiation Budget Instrument, which was already canceled in 20, January 2018, so it looks like this is gone for good. That is a, a special meaning to us because it is based out of... Uh, Rochester, Excellus, as a company working on the project. So unfortunately, we're not going to get a new RBI. Then there's the PACE mission, the Plankton Aerosol Cloud Ocean Ecosystem Satellite. Uh, that was based out of NASA Goddard. That was for early 2022. That's been canceled. The Orbiting Carbon Observatory, Observatory 3, OCO 3. It's a carbon dioxide observatory. Mm -hmm. And I was actually looking at a real-time data set. Well, not real-time, but... Um, a animated data set that shows uh, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide over both the northern and southern hemisphere, uh, which is a really very cool visualization uh, and some really cool data. So uh, unfortunately, we're stuck with the lifespan of OCO2 for that data set. Next up, we have the Deep Space Climate Observatory, or DISCOVER, which was launched by SpaceX, which has a camera. And this satellite has a long history uh, that's been influenced by politics, but it was successfully launched a few years ago, and it has a camera that views Earth that uh, I think at least takes a picture every day. And so their Twitter account and other sites take those images, and you can see a daily time lapse of the Earth, and you can see it's because it's beyond the orbit of the moon, you can actually see the moon transition over Earth. It's at Lagrange Point L1, takes pictures of the Earth, and it's like one every, about every hour. Um, so you can, if you look at them in a slideshow, you can see the Earth rotate, and this is amazing, and I love it so much, and I'm so sad it's getting cut. But well, I think it's, I think it's just the Earth imaging camera. Remember, yeah. Discover is a solar wind observatory. It's also doing the sun bit. I mean, that's a focus. Okay, so what about this is getting canceled? So this is a really interesting example of they have the satellite; it's on orbit, and it's sending the data, but they're not going to be funding the people on Earth to take that data, process it, and release it. Okay, so the data is not lost. It's just not... It's just put in storage. I think the data is lost. I I think they probably are taking it off of the main sequence of the satellite, right? Remember, you have to set things up in a process order. So as as a guy walking on a cube right now, 
and I don't know about y'all, but, um, you know, we think about like, we send up a schedule to the satellite to go through this process of activities over time. And, you know, and every so often you downlink this packet of information, then this packet of information, then this packet of information. I wouldn't be surprised if they just said, hey, hey, satellite, just don't worry about pictures anymore. Just take, look at the sun, give us heads up about the sun, just don't take any pictures anymore. That still makes me sad. That doesn't help. I'm still sad. Well, just remember, it, cameras, cameras, so like, there's a camera that you can buy online for a satellite, and it's got like a 1.4 watt startup and everything, right? And then it takes a half watt to take an image, and then another two watts to turn off or process the data, right? I mean, that's that's usable wattage right there. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where uh, this, this satellite is unfortunately a very popular political uh, target, and so it doesn't have the same kind of support that some of these other missions do. W-First has a pretty large base of congressional support, so during reconciliation where Congress actually takes this proposal, makes changes, and it passes the bill, we might see W-First come back. But Discover is definitely on the chopping block. And again, this is uh, the same cancellation was planned for last year, and it was saved. So we'll have to see whether Congress still sees value in that a year later. And remember, I think it's just the old imaging camera they're not funding, right? I think they're still funding Discover as a satellite, or are they just saying, like, we aren't just going to take pictures of the Earth anymore? That was four. What's the last mission that will also get cut? So this is the Climate, Absolute Radiance, and Refractivity Observatory. So this is a high-priority Decadal Survey. So this is data that uh, they really, really want to get that they're not currently getting. And it's been uh, funded up to $77 million already. And uh, I think it's being run out of the NASA Langley Center, uh, but it's not going to be extended. My NASA Langley, no! <laughs> Oh. So I, I take it you had personal connection to this one. <laughs> no, I just, I saw it around a whole bunch. <laughs> gotcha. So it's not only the Earth science missions and future satellite programs that are being defunded. We also, probably the biggest uh, and probably the most well-known program that's getting defunded is the International Space Station. Now, what this does not mean uh, is that in 2019, the ISS is going to fall out of the sky. We're not going to get those great... Uh, images and videos of spacewalks and science, but it does mean that the, starting in 2024-2025, the funds to maintain and run the ISS are not going to be appropriated by Congress. Yeah, which which is interesting because at Mir's end of life, I think Mir was sold to a private company, and they tried to like refurbish it and everything, but it ended up being a pretty high cost. I'm interested to see how this happens because ISS has a fascinating history. It started out in the 1980s with the double key hall and the space station freedom concepts. You have a redirect early 1990s saying, hey, make sure the Russians can hang out too. And then we've now assembled with components from the ESA, JAXA, Russia, and America. Uh, that being said, it looks like the Chinese have their own space station working just fine, the Tiangong series. So I'm interested to see what they mean about funding and analysis and equipment, right? We have seen privatization efforts on the ISS before be pretty successful. We have CASIS, uh, which 
helps manage a lot of the scientific experiments on the ISS. We have people actually using the docks on the ISS that will never filled because of changes within the program to host things like BEAM. Um, NanoRacks, even here in Washington, D.C. and throughout the country, they manage CubeSat deployment from the ISS. And humans are there just to make sure that things run properly. Um, that being said, though, we still are seeing some really fascinating experiments. They were just announcing a few results of the trend study uh, this past, these past few weeks, stuff about like gene expression and um, when one of the brothers came back to Earth and everything, he actually had a heightened mental fatigue. My big question is, what more science can we get out of the ISS? And, and does that science need to be maintained by NASA? I think a really interesting uh, thing to consider is that the ISS has been launched piecemeal with these uh, modules, either by the space shuttle or uh, with Proton and SpaceX even put out the beam module in Dragon. Um, but the t main limiting factor in the space station has been how long can those modules stay up there in the space environment. And NASA says that they have a reasonable expectation, reasonable safety, that it can stay up till 2028. And then at that point, things are going to start to break down, and it's going to be very, very expensive to either repair or replace failing components. So that is kind of a semi-hard cap on the lifetime of the space station without a huge increase in funding. Again, ISS took about $100 billion to construct and put into orbit. Um, so this 2024 is relatively soon. It's seven years from now. Uh, but it's not uh, a huge uh, span of time between when they're defunding it, according to this proposal, and when the station would unfortunately be uninhabitable and not safe to inhabit unless huge modifications and huge repairs were made. And one thing that um, they're not specific about is commercial modules and commercial um, participation with the ISS. Um, in uh, Quoted from spacepolicyonline.com in the article, they state that industry could continue to operate certain elements or capabilities of the ISS as part of a future commercial platform, but doesn't really give anything specific beyond that. So, TJ, do you think we'll see more, like, uh, more beam modules, Bigelow Aerospace, taking over what they've already learned and expanding on it? Or maybe make it a tourist spot? I mean, going <laughs> I off know. what Anthony said about Mir, where apparently they transitioned that to a commercial partner, the thing is, the ISS has an amazing capability, it's got a ton of power generation, a pretty good amount of pressurized internal volume, but it's very expensive. That capability costs a lot of money. And we've seen from the Chinese, Tiangong 1 and 2, with uh, Beam, the test module, but the BA330, you can either use different technologies or a smaller scale, still get that microgravity lab environment for a dramatically lower cost. Having that huge space station, while it looks cool, gives us unmatched capabilities. If I was a commercial operator or a private operator, it's like, okay, well, I might want to spend, like, if I'm spending a billion, two billion dollars a year on maintenance and operation, and I can put up a $500 million module or series of modules that are brand new that have another 20-year lifespan, maybe that is a better investment uh, in the near term for some of that capability. 
And so it's, I think it's going to be a really hard sell for NASA to try to get a commercial operator to take the entire thing over. We've seen proposals to chop pieces off or take a bit off, uh, which I think are a little bit likely, still not very likely, but to take over the entire ISS, which you got to understand that the ISS is a the huge budget item within NASA, with commercial crew and commercial cargo, uh, providing maintenance, all of the experiments that are being run, all of the supply, like, it is a logistical feat that we contain a continued presence in space. I wonder, on that note, I mean, with how expensive it is to bring materials up into space, if it makes sense, which I think it probably does, to recycle a lot of this, because even if the habitat modules are no longer safe after 2028, or at least we can't guarantee that they're safe, then there's still plenty of aspects, or uh, there's plenty of equipment and mechanisms on the ISS itself that probably could be reused for other purposes, whether that means taking them off the ISS and adding them to these newer, either commercial or new government uh, space stations or, or what have you. But I think that there's, there's an argument to be made for recycling as much as we can. We've seen from Russia that it's been up to this point a relatively empty thread that they're going to take their Russian modules and form the basis of a new space station. It's like, that's a proposal that's been put around, but Drew, you mentioned that you know, we put all the stuff up there, and if we can recycle it, that's a benefit. Most of the cost has been in the launch cost of lifting that mass up to the space station. And technology, like parts of that station were designed in the 80s uh, and 90s as modules started going up. And so there's a huge amount of technology advancement that we can leverage uh, in a lot of ways and lessons learned on the ISS. Um, that a new station, something like the Deep Space Gateway, can leverage going forward to be lighter, more efficient, safer. Uh, and right now we're seeing a rather dramatic drop in launch costs with new new rockets, not only from SpaceX, but from the ESA, which we'll get to. Uh, so like putting up new stuff that has those technological evolutions as well as a cheaper launch cost in general, I think it's a pretty attractive argument against doing that reuse. That's a, a very good point, um, and I think that for a lot of applications it makes sense to utilize the most recent technology and, and come up with or send up entire new stations or new what have you. But I still think that at least, I think there is, there's going to be a niche area where you can take parts, uh, like I think the solar arrays or something, parts of the ISS and reallocate them. Uh, can, can we even disassemble components of the ISS? That would be my big question because I knew there was, I think, ripping on one of the solar blankets as they were unfolding it and everything. And they have those tensegrity structures and everything that help deploy the solar arrays. Can we even take the ISS apart? From a, from a sub-module perspective, yes. Because during construction, they dock them or birth them and they can uh, unbirth them and reattach. So the ISS main modules have been reorganized over their lifespan. So there's no reason for those not to be able to be done uh, unless they're not structurally safe. You make a good point with the solar arrays where sometimes, uh, depending on what mechanism they use, they might have been only been able to deploy once, um, which would mean that if we try to 
take those pieces back down to Earth, which is not what Drew's proposing, they're not going to be able to fit. But when you're in a zero-G environment, depending on how structurally safe uh, the solar panels are, you might be able to move them while fully unfurled, uh, as long as you apply a very low acceleration. So potentially it's possible, uh, but again, I don't think many of those parts of the radiators, solar panels, were designed to be uh, replaced, So, especially moved to a whole other station. So decommissioning the ISS, from my perspective, kind of sucks, but knowing that the money that would be funding the ISS would be funneled into the Deep Space Gateway or Lunar um, Gateway Platform thing, whatever I got renamed to, um, makes it better because, I mean, that's the next evolution of uh, persisting human habitation in space. But what does that mean for the the vehicles that have been taking cargo? Um, we've got Dragon 2, Starliner, um, things like Dream Chaser, um, things like Soyuz. Like, can those those technologies and vehicles be used to, I don't know, for future projects or something? Or are they specifically built for the International Space Station? Well, you have to look at how docking occurs, or at least redoable docking occurs. You've got the the mating adapters and everything, the kind of three-pronged nose cones and everything. Those are actually a pretty pretty well-known standard. You can actually go online and download the interface control documents for those, which is kind of neat. Um, so conceivably, we might have set a standard for ourselves for that kind of pressurized docking and mating in, in space already. Um, and potentially, they could continue to be used for other applications. The biggest thing that I'm not hearing so far is, you know, what is the business case, though? Do we leave the ISS open for continuous science exploration that can be done in low Earth orbit? Or do we say, well, in the future, we're going to have a big low 330, I think? which is the one that has like twice as much interior volume as the ISS. Um, you know, are we going to just abandon that? And hopefully that there's a business case for having a bunch of big low modules up in orbit or basic manufacturing or something. I don't know. See, I'm a personally, I'm a fan of the idea of spinning down the ISS and transitioning to a lunar outpost um, because that's going to be a different environment, different challenges. And that enables a lot of remote work on the moon, even if we don't send down humans back to the surface of the moon. However, based on when this timeline is, SLS's changing timeline, Orion, uh, I don't think we're going to have a continuous presence, uh, and we're not going to have a smooth transition from ISS to Deep Space Gateway. And so I would rather see, like, unfortunately, uh, there's not infinite funds. If they can keep ISS operational and keep that manned presence there until at least two modules are ready for Deep Space Gateway, and then we can have a smooth transition. But I think with this proposal, we're going to run that risk of we're going to decommission the ISS, Deep Space Gateway is not going to be ready for whatever reason. And as we saw with the shuttle, decommissioning in 2011 with commercial crews supposed to be just a few years uh, after, they're not going to be technically operational until 2019. So that's an eight-year gap between U.S. having its own astronaut capability to having a replacement with private partners. We have an eight-year gap between the last person leaving the ISS, the first person arriving at Deep Space Gateway. I think 
that's not a. I think there's a benefit to having that continued presence uh, that we're going to be missing out on. And right now, even if a private company decides to build their own space station or another government, um, you know, like maybe if China decides to open their uh, space station to international partners or something, having a, a continuous presence in space could be doable, but only if it's already up there, right? It, it takes so long to develop. Um, I feel like we're definitely going to have some downtime. Maybe, maybe there's an opportunity for like the two-module space station. Right, some of the earliest concepts for human presence in space were things like ALMAZ or the manned orbiting laboratory, eventually Skylab, uh, which has a, an incredible number of similarities to Tiangong One, and Tiangong Two. Um, maybe that's the key. With all these brand new heavy lift vehicles, we send up crew exploration vehicles or private crew transfer vehicles, with something kind of so similar to a small laboratory almost like what we saw with Space Lab or Space Hab. Maybe the real business proposition is not just one big space station, but a few small space stations uh, with different focuses in biomedical applications or manufacturing. Um, maybe, maybe that's the key. <laughs> maybe we have a company in the future that just builds, you know, coming off of the Deep Space Gateway competition, which is being held among six different companies right now, if I remember correctly, or a couple of different companies. I'll be more vague. Um, maybe the key is, well, hey, you didn't win the contract for Deep Space Gateway, but now you have this human habitation module. And now we can we can little lower it with a bunch of tiny little space stations. I'd, I could get behind that. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an exciting uh, future. And I think. Bigelow, you know, Bigelow Aerospace, their technology is really, really exciting. We've talked about their ability to execute on those ideas, but if we could get multiple BA330s or with the next generation launchers, BFR, New Glenn, put up a BA2100, we could see kind of that explode. We can have private uh, space hotels, more private laboratories, things like that. And that's, that's all wonderful, but from a NASA kind of driven perspective, my concern is if you go off with a, a small one-off, one or two module space station that, say, is going to be crewed with Orion or even crewed with a commercial crew vehicle, if there's not a direct lineage between the LEO module and what ends up in Deep Space Gateway, that can be a diversion. And I think the ISS kind of, we've done a big majority of technology development for space station in LEO, and building another smaller space station in LEO doesn't help us build a space station around the moon, because those challenges are a lot different. I'm going to say this, though. What's the difference between a small space station in LEO and a small space station in, around the moon, right? It's if around the freaking moon, dude. No, 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 but listen to this. Listen to this. If a small space station around LEO has a propulsion module on the back of it, Right. The difference being is that the one around Leo still has fuel. A lot of really cool, well, from what I've seen from like uh, experiences with Venus mission architecturals, is that you could build a small two-module kind of thing, put people inside of it, and do an eight-month round trip or something to Venus and back. Right. We potentially open up the opportunity to build tiny space stations. Right, the difference between a space station 
and a, a legitimate spaceship is propulsion. And maybe smaller is the future. We've seen the same kind of success with sets. It's a different technologies, I know, and different scopes. But what if this is really setting the stage to say, look, we have a lot of these like space station coals with propulsion ends on the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want to uh, take too much time, uh, too much, spend too much more time on this, but I, I, I really. Um, do you think that's exactly what makes this ripe for private development in that area? There are some slight differences between LEO and a lunar orbit. There's actually less risk of micrometeorites because we don't have that space junk that's around low Earth orbit. Uh, but you also have less frequent supply runs, right? If SLS is going to be the main supply run, I know there's a commercial uh, contract out to see if we can do commercial partners to resupply this. You're going to have less frequent supply runs, which means Everything needs to be more reliable because it needs to be able to last longer before maintenance. You have to have more supplies. So it is a different challenge, uh, and it's more risky that way. But I definitely agree with Anthony in that uh, part of the mission, extended mission for Deep Space Gateway, is you build the space station and then you send the modules that are going to become the first Martian uh, manned vehicle, according to NASA, and you dock them to this deep space gateway. So you have this proven vehicle that's been flying for five to ten years that has life support and supplies. You send this new Martian spacecraft to attach to it, and it spends eight months orbiting the moon simulating a Mars mission for the duration, but you have that lifeboat right there. And then eventually after that mission's successful, that same vehicle with its propulsion system would go out to Mars, uh, to Phobos and Deimos. So that's a definitely a great opportunity, and you know, you one can argue, why can't you just do that in LEO? I would love to see a Mars-capable transfer vehicle do a demo flight in low Earth orbit for six months a year uh, if that technology is going to be directly applied to eventually go to Mars. Yeah, we're, we're kind of going over time by a lot, but um, hate to hate to kill the mood, but one last thing that is, is cut in this budget request is NASA Education Office. Which this is this is the one that I find the most offensive, which is <laughs> the most offensive. <laughs> just it's primarily because I mean the the ISS will eventually need to be retired regardless. When that happens, you know there, there's valuable science that can be done up until the end of its life, but eventually we need to replace it. But this seems like such a departure to close the Office of Education, um, the NASA Office of Education, because I value what it does, um, not in any small part because I've competed in two of their competitions. So I enjoy doing what they offer to the undergraduate and grade school level um, uh, championships. And the coloring books. And the coloring books. But what about, I mean, I wonder if this will affect internships with NASA at all. Um, I wonder how much of the funding comes from there. I know that they support internships quite heavily. They they help get people through that process, um, but this it it's so bizarre to me that this is something that would be cut. Maybe reduce its funding, reduce what it's working on, um, so you could fund, you know, the you could increase the funding to the space exploration, what your primary missions are. But this is something that works in the background to really to the benefit of NASA as an organization. And I think to the United States as a country and to the world. And we should say that the reason for this cut is um, it's another way 
um, that the administration hopes to use funds to focus on human exploration. So money that would be going to NASA education would um, now be spent on the human exploration programs. Yeah, so to kind of give an idea, uh, the Office of Education has a budget of about $60 million a year. And so compared to a lot of these programs, it's a drop in the bucket. Well, the 19,600 million, and you, they use 60 million? Can you use billions and stuff? That's really complicated. No, but I, I just want to produce it comparable. If I say 60 million and 19.6 billion, these are really big numbers, like 19,600 million compared to 60 million. <laughs> I agree with Drew where I think it's, it's really like, they went through the budget and they looked at the box of the Office of Education. It's like, oh, well, that's not main space exploration. Let's check it off and for, for cancellation. It seems like they didn't use a Pareto chart because this is the... All right, so in 2017, looking at the budget proposal, in 2017, education had a $100 million budget. Uh, this year, it has a $99.3 million budget. And then from 2019 on, it's zero. And that's just yeah. So so to compare, like okay, bring, to bring it around to what Anthony was trying to say, if you kind of chop off an order, uh, three orders of magnitude, and say NASA's total budget is nineteen thousand six hundred dollars, the education office would have gotten one hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. And then they're proposing in twenty eighteen ninety nine dollars and thirty cents, and then from then on zero point zero. That actually surprisingly helps when you kind of chop off a few orders of magnitude. But the the value isn't in tech, isn't in like, you know, developing a space space station. There's so much extra value in, in this office, and I think it's really important. Like, I don't let's try to rephrase this. This office is part of the NASA PR machine, and as we discussed before, NASA's budget is heavily dependent on how it's perceived by how it's perceived by Congress, how it's perceived by the average citizen and hampering its ability to change that perspective is not a, a long-term, in my opinion, not a long-term smart decision. We're talking about things like Space Camp. Right? That's a, a cultural touchstone for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people for decades, where even if you didn't go to Space Camp, like you had the ability, like your parents wanted you to go to Space Camp. Like that's something you could do and inspire engineering. And that program is no longer uh, going to exist. And, you know, we talked about the NASA coloring books and, you know, trying to get these complex, really crazy science and space missions into a way that, you know, a six-year-old or a ten-year-old can understand, which is valuable in some ways. But they really do, this often particularly plays a huge role in K-12 through education introducing students to space science. And... That is the time frame where students decide, do I want to go into, say, accounting or programming, or do I want to go into engineering? And that's going to be one less factor that they're going to have to choose those paths that ultimately help NASA achieve its larger goals. And what, what worries me is that even things like podcasts, there, there are two NASA podcasts I know of. One is Gravity Assist, um, but also NASA Ames does a podcast. We've... Uh, interviewed people from NASA, and I'm pretty sure that's like a charge number that would go into the education budget. So it's uh, if NASA does cool stuff, and then like the public as a whole 
doesn't really get the chance to appreciate it or learn about it. I'm super biased, but I, I kind of have to be like, I don't know. I don't, I think, um, in the future we might come back to this discussion, but it's just very surprising. Um, even more so than W, way more so than W first. Um, but I hope it's not as bad as I fear. I'm not going to speculate on it yet. I, I think it's probably going to end up coming back. Uh, we'll probably see that in the near future, it coming back and everything. Because if you think about well, this is a request impact, as well, right? What was that? This is a request. This is so a Congress request. has yeah. to also agree. And I think that's and, a good way to that's a good way to end this. Is that the this is a request? It's a budget proposal from the executive branch. There has already been plenty of of negative opinions or negative reactions from astronomers, especially with the W first program. Uh, and the people who are invested in the ISS, um, commercial companies who want to work with the ISS want it to be continued to be funded by the government. They aren't ready to take on full funding for that yet. But this is, I think most critically, the members of the House and Senate panels that are related to space have reacted negatively as well. So this budget, as all budgets, proposals, None of them will be implemented in full. There will be changes. Exactly. Um, can I At have one? At the end of the day, it's, a, it's, it's just a request. And, you know, to, to assess how good a program is doing, right, there's that evaluation step in the policy cycle. You have to do economic impact. You have to look at an economic impact analysis, for example. You have to identify your return on investment. And... Um, Education is really hard to identify a return. You know, yeah. what is the value of a kid getting inspired? What is the value of a, of, a, of a student being an intern? What is the value of the dream of, you know, becoming an engineer, even if it's in a different field, right? So it's always hard to assess educational programs in terms of monetary terms, um, but you know, if you were to do a direct economic impact analysis, would look which looks at like who gets paid where and when, and looks at like the spread. You know, Office mm. of Education is pretty well spread out across a lot of different NASA schools. It is it isn't like a science mission where it's focused at a center. You know, it's going to impact everyone with a NASA center pretty evenly and. You know, we'll probably see feedback. Remember, this is the agenda-setting phase. We haven't made policy yet. I think the final thing to remark on that is this was try attempted to be cut last year, and it got brought back almost at 100% funding, 99.9. So I don't think we have much to be concerned about. Uh, it's just one of those things where one side asks for everything it wants, the other side asks for everything they want, and eventually we get a compromise that uh, has cuts on some sides and fully funding things on the other side. So I right. think that's the main theme is that two weeks from now or a month from now, whenever this bill gets signed, a lot of things will change. A lot of things will be mitigated and uh, we'll have to do an update when that happens. Yeah, keep an eye on spacepolicyonline.com for that. Hey guys, it was great talking to you about space policy today and uh, can't wait to talk to you all again about it. Thanks, Anthony. All right, man. Take care. Take care. We have three, four topics. I don't know if we're going to get to all of them, but one that I brought up is the head of the ESA 
posted an official response on his blog regarding the Falcon Heavy launch that happened a few weeks ago. So Jan Warner is the ESA Director General, and on February 11th, about five days after the launch, he posted a response called uh, Europe's Move, and there's also a follow-up called Europe's Move Part 2, which we'll get to. And the blog talked about a few things, mainly the ESA, their primary launchers is the Soyuz and Ariane 5. And for the past several years, as commercial competitors have entered the market, the cost associated with Ariane 5 and the over-capability, because it can take up to two satellites into orbit at a time, has been called into question. And their, their response at the time was, let's build a rocket called Ariane 6. There's two versions. Uh, one has a higher payload capacity, and also Vega-C, which is a solid rocket booster-based lifter. Uh, and so those changes were implemented several years ago, but as reusability has been proved and put into use by SpaceX and with Blue Origin building a reuse-first rocket with New Glenn, a lot of heads are looking at ESA as like, you started these two development programs, three if you're talking about two versions of Ariane 6. So the main question that's been raised is, with Ariane 5 to Ariane 6, they were targeting the low cost that, say, a Falcon 9 in 2014 had. Uh, main, a lot of these improvements were uh, cheaper engines, also consolidating manufacturing from having pretty much components built in every single ESA member state to a few larger contractors to reduce costs, streamline manufacturing, try to bring those economies of scale and that vertical integration that SpaceX is known for to European space. But now with Falcon Heavy, with a price fully reusable of $90 million and the ability to reland, hopefully, all three boosters on every flight, uh, it looks like airing six, when it comes to marketing in a few years, won't be competitive at all. And so that was the question that was being posed generally at the ESA. And uh, Jan Warner went out publicly on his blog and answered that question directly. Uh, so I want to read a few choice quotes in here uh, because it, it shows some of the attitude that uh, he has and also the environment that he has to operate in because uh, it's slightly different than NASA because you're talking about many, many different countries uh, and their budgets and contributions. It's very different than SpaceX or Blue Origin that don't have public uh, sponsors in most senses, mostly contracts for them. So he talks about uh, the phenomenon can be observed in the space sector with companies like Blue Origin, SpaceX, OneWeb, and Rocket Lab now driving developments across a range of areas. One particularly powerful example is in the launcher sector, where global competition has been intensifying with the advent of very cheap systems. In addition, breakthrough developments from new space sector players, such as reusable launchers, and marketing wheezes like sending a car into space are attracting attention and increasing pressure on the public sector. So, a very direct reference to the Falcon Heavy demo launch uh, with Starman and the Roadster right there. He goes on to say, uh, ESA ministers decided in 2014 to develop a new launcher family comprising Ariane 6 and Vega C based on the existing Ariane 5 and Vega. The promise to secure autonomous access to space and reduce the price by a factor of two proved sufficiently compelling to secure ESA member stage agreement to finance the development. At the time, I succeeded in placing environmental concerns and possible development of reusability among the high-level requirements. 
So he lists out two main goals for the program. Maintain and ensure European launcher competence with long-term perspective, including possibility of reuse and flyback, and ensure possibility to deorbit upper stage directly. So these two things cover uh, what we saw was Project Adeline, where the booster would have wings and be able to land on a runway, and upper stage uh, deorbit is important to reduce the possibility of space debris accumulation. He then goes on to say, due to time and cost pressure, however, there are, these aspects did not make it onto the agenda for Airing 6 and Vega C. Yet in the meantime, the world has moved on, and today's situation requires that we reassess the situation and identify the possible consequences. Uh, at the same time, it is essential that we now discuss future solutions, including disruptive ideas. Simply following the kind of approaches seen so far would be expensive and ultimately will fail to convince. Totally new ideas are needed, and Europe must now prove it still possesses that traditional strength to surpass itself and break out beyond existing borders. So that is a pretty direct, uh, in, from my point of view, a direct acknowledgement that SpaceX with reuse is on the what we call the right path, where they have already in production processes, vertical integration, reduced the cost, and now with reuse they're looking at another huge drop in cost. And according to this, it's pretty clear that these are something that we need to react to and we need to consider because our traditional way of doing business isn't going to cut it with this kind of competition. Yeah, the the disruption caused by Falcon 9 and now Falcon Heavy, the, the disruption that at the beginning um, some people uh, dismissed is, we found that has actually stuck. And so before we kind of dissect this more in depth, there was a follow-up, as I previously mentioned, Europe's Move Part 2, uh, where he mentioned that this is the first time he's had to make a statement and then add a Part 2 to it uh, due to the feedback he's gotten. Uh, and there's three sections that are in big bold or highlighted. Uh, first is, the decision of ESA's member states to implement this proposal was the right choice. Consequently, ESA is completely committed, together with its industrial partners, in doing its utmost to achieve the goals we have set for ourselves. Further down the page, mentions the goal is to, uh, quoting what the Ministry asked in 2014, maintain and ensure European launcher competence with a long-term perspective bolded, including possibility of reusability slash flyback. And so with this coming uh, about five days after the first post, it really looks that while even the director of the ESA sees uh, the pressure put onto it by reusable rockets. The member states, the people that actually fund ESA, did bring some pushback. Uh, and while we're, we're, we can pretty much conclude that we're not going to see an airing six cancellation for a new reusable rocket, and the best we can hope for is some reusability add-ons to the platform in the next decade or so. Yeah, and um, his the reason for posting these publicly and, and things are made clear with the last line of his part two. My fervent hope is that the spirit for such an approach still exists in Europe, and that is part of our responsibility to be completely transparent where taxpayers' money is involved. Yeah, it's true. I think it's it's really interesting with Project Adeline is a, an interesting hybrid between what the space shuttle did, what SpaceX is doing, and it is a concept that's been brought up several times. Uh, the boosters for Energia, the Russian space shuttle equivalent, uh, and the boosters which became the Zenit rocket, uh, there was published documents of 
having folding wings where they'd be detached from the center uh, fuel tank and they would fly back and land on the runway. It is not a new idea, but it's one that's never been implemented before and definitely has, uh, in many ways, easier control problems to solve. Flying an airplane with wings, uh, we've been doing that for over 100 years at this point. Landing rockets on their tail using the same rocket engines is something that hadn't been done uh, two years ago. So definitely trying out those ideas is really, uh, really exciting, really interesting. Drew, do you have any, uh, your first opinion when you were reading these? Well, it's, it's disappointing to see him roll back, but it's understandable why he had to. Uh, but it's, I think it shows clearly that old space isn't dead yet, but it's, it's heading towards the door. Yeah, and it's, I think that's definitely an interesting take on things, because when I read this, I was like, wow, like, this must be a signal of a major policy shift, like, uh, for years at, uh, conventions where major launch providers would talk, SpaceX was the little guy that kind of got lapped at, kind of got shoved around, like, you don't launch as much as us, we don't think reuse is going to be profitable or affordable, and we've seen one of those things change around. Uh, the volume of launches SpaceX has done last year was a huge record. This year they want to try to double that to 40 launches or around there. Uh, SpaceX has been competing directly with the ESA in airing space and winning. And uh, that puts a lot of pressure on the ESA because they can no longer partially fund their development programs with commercial funds. Now it's going to be a bigger ask of the ESA member states because they're not producing that kind of revenue. And with reusability, their response from five years ago, Air 86, is still not going to be competitive compared to a reusable Falcon 9. So it's definitely an interesting position, and I would have loved to see this blog post, and then, say, a week later, a month later, uh, an uh, Adeline rocket, an Air 7 or something, right, of, hey, this is five years from now, we're putting our engineers on this, we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's we're full in on reusability. This looks like what ULA is doing, where we're building a cheaper rocket, streamlining our processes, uh, but reusability is, once we do that, once we've stopped, once we stopped, uh, once we're able to compete with SpaceX of 2014, we'll work on our development to compete with SpaceX of 2018. Bringing this back to ESA, he makes it. He, the whole point of these two blog posts have been him looking at the future and then looking back at the current progress and seeing a mismatch. So, um, so Ariane Six is not going to have a reuse in it, right? I'm, I'm, can you can, let's break this down in sort of like an easy to understand method? Ariane Six initially had the goals of maybe being reusable, no. but then that kind of got scrapped. So, if you jump back, I don't know the exact year, but SpaceX was on the scene, and SpaceX, before reuse, they always had, not always, but they had published plans of landing and reusing boosters. But they were able to compete against airing space because they're vertically integrated. They develop their own engines, they bring in raw materials, produce finished rockets. So they were able to compete on cost against airing 5. But, and airing 6... When they looked at Air 5, it was like, okay, we can't make this cheaper. 
because we literally build this across every member state. We build it across hundreds, if not thousands, of contractors because ESA member states contribute to the space program. They want to get a return of something of that program built in their country. And so there was a lot of dealing and haggling of like, okay, well, like if we don't compete on this new vertically integrated company, we're not going to have any revenue and we're not going to be able to produce anything in these countries. So they were able to get an agreement, okay, let's consolidate to just a few companies, a few countries, so we can get cheaper costs, redesign the rocket with cheaper components, cheaper design, so we compete against SpaceX. And this is all happening 2013, 2014, right? Just a few years after SpaceX started launching Falcon 9. However, SpaceX in that time has moved on to reusability, which with Block 5, we can start seeing the first major reductions of that $60 million price tag. There's already an estimate about a 10% discount, so anywhere close to around $50 million for customers flying on reused boosters. And SpaceX flew Block 3, Block 4 reused. Block 5 is supposed to be 10 reuses with little to no refurbishment, rapid reuse kind of thing. Airing 6 can't compete against a reusable Falcon 9 from 2017-2018. And so they're still not going to be able to get those commercial contracts to offset other costs. And that's because the requirements that were set to build Ariane 6 were made in response to 2014 stats? Yes, and while reusability was, as he mentioned in the first one, part of the initial requirements, what was agreed was reusability would not make it in for Ariane 6 as currently planned. So there's no... with, With Vulcan... We, in the plan, we have Vulcan Centaur, Vulcan Asus, and then Smart. So there's two stages of reuse once it starts flying. With Ariane 6, there's no official plans. Project Adeline is a research project for all intents and purposes. It's not on the development pathway of after you know three years, Ariane 6 will have a reusable first stage or a reusable second stage. That's not in the picture right now. And with... Uh blog post part two um you say he he responded and did he rescind some of the comments he made i'm not sure what the point of the part two with blog post part one it's it's acknowledging that airing six cannot compete against spacex going forward and that it's insinuating very very clearly that airing six if the goal was to compete and continue to give esa access to space cheaply it's failed that goal because SpaceX now reuses rockets. Ariane 6 will not be reused. It can't compete. The second one is based on what we can perceive as backlash from ESA member states and the higher-ups in those countries. We're not canceling Ariane 6. You're going to make it work. We're going to fly it. And at best, reusability is something down the road. And... One can argue that something cost fallacy. One can argue that it's... Personally, I would say, Ariane 5, despite the incident a couple months ago, is working. It has access to space. Shoulder that cost consistently until you have a fully reusable or partially reusable Ariane 6 equivalent and not transition over to Ariane 6 and then have to transition to a completely new architecture because Ariane 6 is not designed for reusability. Vulcan is... Supposedly designed for reusability, Falcon 9 from the offset was designed for reusability, and they 
both of those rockets are going to have iterative changes to develop that capability. But from the looks of it, Aaron, they don't think they can reuse Arian 6 in any way given enough time. And so that's to call for an Arian 7 or a new rocket. And until they do that, they're not going to achieve their true goal, which is to compete with commercial launch providers. I see. Yeah, that, that that's a pretty good ending spot. Wish we would have ended on a, a brighter note. Uh, oh, here we go. Brighter note. Brighter note to cheer everyone up before we leave. Specs cast. Uh, we're getting back into the full swing of things. We're going pretty much full throttle. Um, and we can have everyone expect more episodes in the future. Our audio difficulties are steadily being weeded out, getting more consistent schedule and everything like that. So as a listener to the podcast, I appreciate you bearing with us and staying patient as we work through them. Anthony was calling in from a cell phone today to get him on the call. I think it was worth it, but um, yeah, until we can get a proper studio, these are some things we're going to have to deal with. And yeah, I'm, ha- I'm having a lot of fun. So thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to future episodes and check out our backlog of content including interviews with key space people like Tori Bruno or Chris Hadfield, as well as recent reactions to the Falcon Heavy launch. Also, please let us know what you think of the show. Leave a review on iTunes or your current podcast service of choice, or reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. Signing off, this is SpecsCast. The views expressed in this program by its participants do not reflect the views of their employers. Our theme song is by Nelson Scott.